Welcome to Feed the Machine. This podcast is designed to allow business people to share their stories. We will not only learn what they do and how they do it, but our interviews will include topics of mindset, grit, and overcoming obstacles. Get ready. Let's turn it on. Feed the machine. Today, I am sitting with Jim Cole, author of Never Cry Again. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for deciding to to do this. My pleasure. You know, the book Never Cry Again, as I've learned a little bit about you, you had a 50-year career as a civil engineer. That's true. This author thing is definitely part of your life that came later on. That's exactly right. Can you... I guess walk me through how, you know, walk me through how you got to where you are right now. You know, it's incredible to think that you had this career for 50 years of that had nothing to do with writing and ultimately followed your passion and here you are. Well, actually, my career had a great deal to do with writing, but it was writing for technical journals, writing proposals, engineering reports, that sort of thing. And when I retired, I decided that uh, I liked writing but I was through writing with facts. Mm -hmm. And the neat thing about fiction is you can make it up as you go. Yeah. If you're writing an engineering report, you have to be pretty accurate (laughs) with your numbers and everything else. If you're writing fiction, Katie, bar the door. Well, this book that you wrote, I got to tell anyone who's listening right now, it, right from the beginning, I mean, it takes place in the 1930s. That's where it starts out, 1925 or something like that, right? Yes. And the words and the descriptions and the feeling that you deliver to us that are listening. In my case, I was listening to the audible version, which the voices are really incredible and very much paint a picture for for the listener. And I haven't really finished the book. I'm at chapter 11 right now, but I'm just at this point where I'm start, you know, I get to see what where you're going with it and it's really incredible how you took me down this path of almost darkness to kind of have my first experience of rejoicing something not only with the main character but his best friend, Leon. One of my really good friends who's an author and has written several successful books got a hold of my co- a copy and read it. And he said, this is a story about a young man that beats all the odds. And I think he's right, because this little boy is born into abuse and raised in neglect and poverty and actually raised in hatred. And how he survives and where he gets the strength of character to do more than just survive is really what the story is about. It's set in the South in the 1930s, beginning earlier than that, because we take him from birth in 1926 forward. But he's basically, he's a white boy who realizes what many white people didn't realize in that t- in those times, how people distrusted and did not like people who were black. Mm-hmm. In many cases, simply because they were black. And that was so tough for me. I got to tell you, Jim, those first 10 chapters were tough. They were tough because it's a word that I don't like. You know, I have I grew up I grew up with so many black friends and it was really a struggle to get through those first ch- 10 chapters, but 
what they also did for me, and this was a true awakening for me as someone who hasn't experienced, you know, you know, we all hear about racism and you hear sometimes the argument that slavery is from the past or whatever. But when you hear the true experiences that these characters face just for being black and the words that are used and the way that how, how almost they weren't even they weren't free to just navigate life like you or me today. Exactly. And, and it wasn't very long ago. It, it was so it hurt, but it also made a new awareness for me as I listened to it, knowing number one, and I haven't told the listeners yet, you're 84 years old. That's true. You did. You, you, you decided to write this book at, at, at a point where this book is going back to the thirties and the forties. And, and it accomplishes, I think just in chapter 11, those first 10 chapters created the heaviness that when I saw our characters prevail, over evil, it really just, I rejoiced with them as I drove my car listening to the audio version. I'm not going to do, give you <laughs> a spoiler and tell you the ending, but if you rejoiced over that, you'll rejoice at the ending. Oh, that's beautiful. So when you wrote this book, obviously the race, we got to talk about race because... That's what the book's about. How do we not? And how do we get how do we as, as a nation get past the bigotry and prejudice and mistreatment of people of color that's rampant in our past, not just black people? We considered the uh, Native Americans to be inferior because their skins were not white. Hmm. We, the pioneers considered that, uh, this about the Native Americans. The ancestry that we all have of Europeans or many of us have as Europeans, and certainly mine, my ancestry is European. The Europeans in the Middle Ages and before decided that black people were fit for slaves and then you are people of color. Mm -hmm. You had the Crusades back in the year 1000 and whenever, mm -hmm. going into the Middle East. What did they want? They wanted to enslave the people. You had nations striving to enslave whole nations. Mm -hmm. or whole continents in some cases, if you want to look at Great Britain and India. But what your book does is, is it's like, as horrible as all of that is, because it is, you take us to 1930, which really isn't that long ago. Well, for me, it's not. <laughs> but for me, I'm going like, it seems like a really long time ago, but it really was just not at all. It's in your lifetime. You yes, know? I was born in the 1930s. Yeah. And one of my best friends when I was like five or six years old was a little black boy. My mother ran a restaurant and it was attached to a, to a hotel. She ran that hotel. So I was born in a hotel. It wasn't any place fancy, I guarantee. It was really the Motel 6 of its day. Mm -hmm. But this black woman worked in the kitchen of this restaurant. And the little boy lived with his mother next door, but in a shack. And I was close to him. His name wasn't Leon, as the character in the book's name was Leon. This little boy's name was a name that is used in the book, but for another character. The little boy's name was Ezel. But I saw things that happened to Ezel that wouldn't have happened to me. Mm. And the reason they happened to him was he was black. And we were both the same age. It was just how people thought about people. Yeah, it was, almost like, color. You, it was almost like the whites were just conditioned to think this was... Well, I talked with a narrator who's uh, of the book, and 
he was telling me how he got into the story, as you apparently are getting into the story. And he said it struck him how casually white people used the N-word. Yes. And that's true. That's exactly the way people used it. They used it casually and without thought that there was any hurt or any... It's just the way things were. Yeah. You'll find a number of quotes throughout the book that I actually heard people say, and I won't give you those quotes now, but you'll you'll find them as you go through. Mm -hmm. What do you think, you know, the book does, it starts out and and race is is so prevalent. What was the amount that that was part of your agenda in writing it? Like, what was your motive when you decided to write this book? What were the things that you were wanting to accomplish? I really don't know how to answer that question. Basically, the book started as a short story beginning, middle, end. And people would read it and they would say, an unpublished short story, I never got it published. And people would read it and they'd say, uh, and then what happened? And I'd say, no, it's a short story. <laughs> and But I got enough people saying that surely there's more to the story. And so I just sat down one day and took a look at it and thought, well, maybe there is more to the story. And there was more, apparently, about 300 pages more, because <laughs> that, first, that short story is today, chapter one. Yeah. But it sort of wrote itself as I thought about it, because the first thing I thought about when looking at the short story were the boy is mistreated by his mother, who encourages an abuse. Mm-hmm. As nasty and horrid as that sounds, that's, that's what happens in this short story. And she's completely dismissive of her son and chooses to do other things than simply take care of him, fix him supper, for example, or things like that. And I thought, what made her that way? And so I got to thinking about her. And that took us back to 1910 when his mother is born Mm -hmm. in a sharecropper's ranch or sharecropper's house in Lubbock County, Texas, in 1910. And it sort of carries forward from there, and we follow, and we learn later, what made his mother into the unfeeling character that she is. Yes, that chapter was very difficult. You know, for me, it was very interesting how this book, number one, you get to see how powerful these black characters are for this young man at the very early age. And I, I know we'll touch on that. But not only that, but you can't help but wonder why would this mother be so, be this way, you know? Well, that's why chapter two was written. And chapter two brings it to a whole new level. And after I got chapter two done, I thought about, okay, then what? So my readers at that point in time had been talking about, and then what with chapter one. And by that time I'd graduated to, and then what with chapter two. I didn't sit down and write the book in a period, in a short period of time. This took, this was 12 years. I'd pick it up, I'd work on it, and then I'd put it back down again. A lot of times I'd pick it up and I'd go down an avenue with a character that I kind of liked a lot, and I'd come up to a dead end, and I'd realize after maybe 40 or 50 pages that I'd taken the reader completely out of the narrative and taken the reader with me down into a dead end. Mm. So then I had to back up, throw away 60 pages, <laughs> and start over again. That has to be tough. Not really. It's just uh, you get to a point where you say, well, now, wait a minute. This isn't what the reader is going to want to know. Mm-hmm. And so I'd back up and start over, and I'd back up and I'd start over, and I'd go back again. And 
I'd ca- there are several chapters, not chapters, characters, quite a few as a matter of fact, that I really got to like and then later to learn that they don't really do anything for the narrative mm. and they're in my wastebasket wow. today. Wow, how hard is that? I mean, it just seems like that would be tough because I'm sure you, you know, these characters even that you have in the book that play a role, I mean, some of them are protectors of Drew, the main character. Some of them are mentors to Leon and Drew to bring them up and get them ready for the hard knocks of life. And that brings me to the question of where did the characters all come from? Like, where do, do you dream these up? Or how, like, where, where, where is the basis? Most of the characters came from people I knew in real life. I said earlier I was born in a hotel. I was in the 1930s. 22-room, rambling, wood frame two-and-a-half-story structure with a uh, restaurant attached. My grandparents had bought it in the middle 1920s. They both died in the early 1930s, and my mother, at 20 years old, inherited the hotel, took it over, and ran it. It was what they called in those days a railroad hotel because Victoria, Texas, where I grew up, was the district headquarters for the Southern Pacific which meant the trains would come into Victoria, the crews would get off, and a new crew would get on to take the train on through to the Rio Grande Valley or wherever it was going. They'd change train crews. Those crews would come over to our house, to the hotel, spend the night. Next day, they'd get back on a train and go back to and drive that train back, mm-hmm. to which, back to Houston or wherever it was going. Sure. Sitting on the front porch of that old hotel on summer evenings with the men in, their, in these old rocking chairs smoking and talking and telling tales. And I'd be four or five years old. Wow. Listening to those tales, many of which would curl your hair that railroaders would tell. Mm. That's where the story came from. Fascinating. So it's almost like, you know, it's almost like a collage of these different characters that you've not just met, but possibly just stories that you've heard from these people that you would meet. Some of them are. Yeah. And I wish I could recall all of those stories I heard, sure. and I can't, but I recall enough of them mm-hmm. to see if they have a meaning to the narrative as we get, as we start putting the book together. And some of them did, and I, and there were people that I knew and liked, and I put them in the book. In many instances, I changed the name. In some cases, I didn't. <laughs> so tell me, you know, knowing that you had this 50-year career that involved technical writing from an engineer standpoint. Tell us where and how you came across getting into fiction writing. Like at what was it your, was it very early on in your life that you knew this was something you wanted to do or where did you, like, how do you go from being a civil engineer to suddenly, I say suddenly 50 years later, you're working on a, a book or writing stories. I don't really know where it came from. I always kind of wanted to be a writer, but I was, became convinced very early on that that's no way to make a living. And so I never tried that. But I remember back in grade school, school and all, I would write little stories and show them to my teacher. And some of them would like the stories and sometimes they wouldn't. But after graduating from high school and going to two years of a junior college, I decided that's enough college for me. And I went to Houston and got a job in construction as an apprentice, an apprentice pipe fitter of all things. And I worked in that for about a year. We were working on putting together 
a unit at the Sinclair Refinery in Pasadena, Texas. And all that winter and the mud and cold and whatever of seeing something come up out of the ground, literally, and be a, a thing of value, like this refinery unit. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. I went back to college, got my engineering degree, and that's what I did. I built things. And for the first 35 or 40 years, it was, it was a lot of fun. I had a great time For the first as an 30 to 40 years, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, but then I got into <laughs> management. And that wasn't fun at all. <laughs> Isn't that interesting how, you know, your career was was something you enjoyed and all of that. But it got, I guess you're, what you're saying is, is that when you rose to the point of being responsible for others and required to kind of, you know, get other teammates to perform, that that's where things got challenging. It did. It began getting challenging probably after I'd been in the engineering field for maybe 25 years, maybe 30 mm-hmm. out of the total time I was there. Being in management and being in charge, and when I retired, I was president of the company by that time. Mm-hmm. And I was ready to quit. I would joke with people telling them that uh, I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna retire, I'm gonna go down to the bay, and I'm gonna get me a bait house, and I'm gonna sell bait and beer. That was the dream. Well, I really didn't want to do that, but they'd say, what are you going to do when you retire? That's what I told them I was going to do. That's funny. Some of them believed it. Yes. But I didn't do that. What I did when I retired, and I said, boy, I'm through with that. It was fun. I had a great time, at least for the first few years, 30 years or so. And then I got really burned out with trying to manage the whole thing and make it and operate the whole company and things like that. Yeah. I don't think I did a bad job at doing that. It's just I got tired of doing that really quickly. Well, that and that's what it is. It's like, to me, like the one of the exciting things about knowing we were going to do this today, it's like you are the story of somebody following their joy. It's like you discovered your joy and you took that wherever you could fit it in. And I'll let you elaborate on how you wrote this book. But it sounds like to me that when you started you explored different options and and this book wasn't written overnight this wasn't something you just put on your calendar and wrote the book it was no. a it, it was a process it was a process the last 10 years of my career i did a lot of international travel ton of international travel now when you're flying from los angeles to seoul korea you're in an airplane for like 16 to 18 hours and there's two or three things you can do You can sit there and you can eat every time they come by and give you food and they give you a lot of food. (laughs) You can drink yourself silly. You can sleep. Well, after a while, that gets boring. Mm -hmm. So I decided, since I'd always thought about being a writer, that's what I'd start. And I had a little laptop computer, Mm -hmm. not anywhere near like computers you have today. (laughs) Basically, it was a word processor. Sure. But And it was heavy as it could be. In any case, I did have a little laptop. And I would, uh, I started writing a story. Since I was going back and forth, not only to Seoul, but to Bangkok as well, I wrote a book about Oriental spies taking place in <laughs> World War II and things like that. It was kind of a Terry and the Pirates thing. Oh, I had a dragon lady and whatnot, you yeah, know. Yeah, cool. And it was awful. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> it was the worst thing I've ever done. I've still got a copy in my garage. It sounds like a version of 007. Well, it was awful. Yeah. It was, it was entirely juvenile and, (laughs) 
Oh, I'm ashamed to even talk about it these days. But that's encouraging. It just means like, hey, if you're out there and you write your first book and it looks like a pile of crap, don't be discouraged. <laughs> well, it looked like a pile of crap. That's true. <laughs> and it, it didn't exactly discourage me. It kind of bent me out of shape, though, because I'd spent all this time back and forth across the Pacific and sitting in an airplane seat, typing this thing out and having a great, great time writing it. Oh, it's fun to write. It's awful if you'd sit down and try to read it. Wow. And entirely childish and juvenile and all that sort of business. In any case, when I finally retired, walked out the door, I said, well, if I want to write, maybe I ought to go and do something about that. So I went out to the Rice Glasscock School of Continuing Education, and they had Saturday classes in creative writing. And I took several of those, and, and yeah, the first book I wrote, was really bad. Wow. So once you learned kind of these philosophies that writers use, you were able to really identify. Yeah. What they, one of the classes is called story and structure, mm. where the structure of the story is as important as the story itself and how you bring the characters in and take them back out again. It was really an important class. The other was character development and continuity. You can't change your characters. Once you create a character, that guy has to stay how would you say it, in character, through mm. your book. People don't change, at mm. least in the book. Yes. Maybe people change Fast in real enough. life Yeah. after going some sort of, through some sort of epiphany, Yeah. thinking about St. Paul on the road to Damascus and all that sort of business. But in a book, you better keep them the same unless you want to start writing about what their particular epiphany was. Mm. So story and structure, character development and continuity, that made a whole lot of sense to me. And then after I got the story written, the book written, and I said, that's it, type the end, I uh, showed it to a few people, and one lady who's written a number of best-selling books took a quick glance at it. She said, you know, you need an editor. <laughs> at the time, I thought editors told you where to put commas and periods and things mm. like that. And the guy she sent me to did what we call a developmental edit where he looked at the book from the standpoint of story and structure mm. and the standpoint of character development and continuity of that character. And we wound up taking this paragraph and moving it over here, which changed the timeline, which you then had to go back through and work it out. One simple little thing as one sentence in page one that I had written and the guy made it better. And I'll tell you how that happened. This, this little boy on page one, is only seven years old, and he's just had his cap, his only cap, knocked off his head by a bunch of bullies, and they've run off in the woods, and he's lost his cap, and he's really bent out of shape about it. He goes home to his, to his house, he walks home, he's, he's bent out of shape about it, doesn't know what he's going to do, doesn't have anything he can do about it. He goes home, and the line is, as he opened the wire gate leading to his house, he ran his hand across his sandy hair, and felt how hot the sun had made it. That was my line. The editor says, no, 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 no. He ran his hand across his sandy hair and wondered if the heat he felt was from the sun or the anger in his head. Mm. Now what happens is the reader is inside that character's head. And that's what my editor did for me. Great guy. Incredible shift of perspective for exactly. the reader. Exactly. But it takes the reader right inside the kid's head. Now they're looking at the world through the kids' eyes. Mm -hmm. They weren't the first 
half of that page. But by the time they get to the bottom of page one, they're inside that little boy's head. Now you're seeing things through the little boy's eyes. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole intent of character of chapter one. Yes. So that's really what the editor did. Great guy. I wish I could get him to edit my next book, but I can't. Why not? He's, uh, he's, he works for a television station in Dallas, Texas, and okay. he's got a whole crew working for him, and he's too darn busy to fool wow. with me. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. But I believe I'll find another editor because I do have another book on the way. And I did find another editor, and she is really doing is it gonna the be same a, thing. Is it a sequel to this, or is it a completely different? I thought it was a completely different story, but it turns out it's going to be book two of a trilogy. For The book you're reading, Never Cry Again, is book one. Got it. So this next book is a story that takes place during World War II mm-hmm. in Galveston, Texas. Mm-hmm. And it's about a young widow who has a son crippled with polio. And the little boy's heart's desire is to get rid of the braces and be able to go to the beach and run with the wind. And how she gets him there, set against the backdrop of everything that happened in Galveston during World War II, mm-hmm. tankers being sunk off the coast of Galveston, etc. How she gets him to the point where he can go to the beach and run with the wind is what that story is about. Incredible. Well, let's let's talk about Never Cry Again a little more. Sure. Like let's let's talk about some characters. Like can you like b- before we go into some some other angles, you know, the books the book starts out with us realizing this young boy's connection to a black family. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that for to set it up for some people if they're if they're just wanting to know kind of what will be their destiny if they start to read this book. And can you give us the elevator pitch for, for, <laughs> I, for I the can, book? I, well, I can certainly try because it is a story, like my writer friend said, of a young man who beats all the odds. He's born into poverty, neglect, and raised with hatred. And how he survives and gets the strength of character to do more than just survive is what the story is about. When he's born, his mother's a prostitute. He's born in a house of ill repute in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1926. No children's protective services in those days. His mother didn't want him. Get him away from me. She didn't want to be pregnant. She wanted to try to get rid of him while she was still pregnant, and she was unable to do that for whatever reason. Mm Mm-hmm. And no Planned Parenthood in those days either. So she has the baby and she didn't want him. And she and an elderly black maid who works at the, at the house says, I'll take him. And she does. His very first meal is at the breast of a black woman who has just weaned her own children. Wow. The, she takes him to her rural congregation right outside the city limits of Little Rock. Oh, an evangelical Christian congregation. And these people keep him and raise him. They're his family. He lives with them for five years. They teach him. They're his family. They teach him their songs and their religion. I even have a scene where it's baptism in the in the river, and this little boy is running up and down. Little white boy is running up and down the bank of the river. He's saying, "Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus." At three years old, when he's five, the Jim Crow laws of the times catch up with him because it's against the law for a white person to be in a black church or a black person to be in a white church. The authorities take the little five-year-old boy away from the only family he's ever known. They make his mother take him back. She leaves Little Rock, moves to a small town in southern Arkansas, sets up shop in a rural part of the the town in a little three-room shotgun house. 
little boy's room's the first is in front is the front room kitchen's in the middle his mother sets up shop in the bedroom in the back because she's a prostitute exactly she's also an alcoholic and if she gets money she chooses to spend it usually on liquor but the house is in a rural part a poor part of the southern arkansas town and the little boy is surrounded by the only people he knows he can trust black people and they take care of him they find clothes for him to wear through church sales and or mm-hmm. clothing drives and things like that. They teach him how to cook so he can cook for himself. He even finds a job at a small rundown grocery store when he's like nine or ten. And the proprietor of the grocery store takes the labels off cans sometimes and gives them to the boy. I say, here, I don't know what these are, but they may be soup, but I can't sell them without the label. Mm. And he takes care of himself, knowing that his mother is not going to do it. And it's interesting that all these characters support him and help him, and even this store owner, or... Who's Hispanic, by the way. Wow. I, I do love how, how this the book, like I said, is it, it's, it's tough if you're someone who, you know, I grew up where I'm just, I'm the N-word and all of the racial tensions that this that have to be used in this book for you to really understand the time that it took place and the dynamics between this extended family if you will versus the boy's mother it really you wrote it strong i mean you didn't you didn't dampen any anything i I write it the way people talked in those days that's offended people i've had people tell me that i have a character taking the lord's name in vain and I write it the way he said it, mm-hmm. or would have said it if he were mm-hmm. a real character. Mm-hmm. And maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should have simply had a sentence in, taking the Lord's name in vain, he did so-and-so and so-and-so. But that wasn't the way he talked. Well, in your book, the, your book did something interesting. You know, I, I'm not someone who reads a lot of fiction. I just don't. I mean, I watch movies and stuff, but I, a lot of times I read like reference books and books about just you know, usually just nonfiction, but the book, and especially when you do the audible version, which I don't even do that often, but I, I, with this case, I did it because I was on this airplane ride and the book really is characters talking to each other and you get to really visualize what's happening in certain, in certain parts that are just, you know, hard to, hard to listen to, but necessary, but you can't help Taking the taking what you're hearing and connecting it to the time in American history where this seems just it just seems outlandish as someone who's you know born in 1977 I listen to it and I go like no way like how could this have ever happened like how could it be that just being African American you can't even walk down the street and just be comfortable like there was no peace of mind for these for these characters. And in the meantime, the love and care and the protection that they give this character, Drew, that the book is about is incredible. And I think that I was very, like, I, I you know, it wasn't till I got, like I said, till chapter 10 that I found out and discovered what you did to me. It was almost like that bond between him and his friend and my first experience of them having prevailing if you will against evil it was just lovely and i got to actually 
enjoy it because of all of how much you prepared the heaviness of that time for African-Americans? I experienced it. As I said, I had a, a friend who was black, which basically was kind of against the rules. My mother allowed it to happen because the boy's mother worked in my mother's restaurant. But ordinarily, my mother would not have let me have a friend who was black. She would discour- would have discouraged it. There's so many of us that just, you know, it's so hard to imagine, but I, I, I know it's real, right? You're telling me you lived it. I lived it. You know, so we see this family, you know, we, we see him go back to his mom's house. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you would summarize that? And I, I do, I, I can't wait to talk to you about race and what you've seen over your lifetime and what your feeling is about where we are today versus, you know. I have many black people that who, who bought the book and they stand there and they talk to me about the book. And sometimes they come back and they say, oh, I bought your book. I want to talk to you about it because I'll be, I go to different grocery stores to sell this book and book signings. Kroger has a grand program, incidentally, on that one for Texas authors. And so people will, I'll go back to a store that I've been in before. And people come up to me and they say, oh, I bought your book. And a lot of times black people come up to me and they, and they will want to talk about it. And they'll tell me that we're not as far along as we white people would like to think we are. Mm-hmm. And they said it's more subdued. They will tell you if you spend time talking to them. And I have spent my time talking to a lot of them, a lot of people who are black about this very thing. They say it's difficult for them to talk to white people about their difficulties because so many white people think, well, we solved the problem. That's it. We're done. Mm -hmm. We passed uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Well, whoopee, we're done. No, we're not done. And that's the part that I think I want the book to bring out. Mm. Although the book ends way before the 1964 Act, Still, I want the people, people to understand, we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. As a people, as a nation, we should be a nation of people, not a nation of white people and black people and people of color, people of different religions. Mm-hmm. There should be a connection that we have regardless of these identifying factors. Exactly. It's like everybody wants to be identified as something they don't want to be. But it's like the media and even, you know, as I listen to this book, if, you, if I were to really think about what really is felt so toxic in those first chapters, because I'm not accustomed to hearing that word. And I've, you know, I, I grew up loving so many of my friends that are black and some of them are African-American. Some of them are Caribbean. I mean, I have all kinds of friends and I even have a little brother that is black and we and I know just from my relationship with him you know I get to see the perspective that I agree with you there's a lot there are a lot of challenges and I think that what the book did for me which which even with all my understanding what the book did was it almost made me live a day in the life of what any like right now you could be if you're in your 80s you could be my grandfather so that means that there are people walking around right now that, that their grandparents experienced this wholeheartedly. And while you were white in 1930, they were not. And they were experiencing all of the things that you hear of in this book, which I think is almost an entirely great reason for anyone to buy the book. 
just to go into this time machine and empathetically experience what it might be like to be afraid of, of even one of the things in the book that happened to me that was, I felt so powerless for, for the boy was these three white bullies basically think that it's illegal for a black kid to punch them back and they go after him, they jump him. And, and what a heroic moment when you ultimately meet the sheriff. I mean, that, that, the last part of the book that, that I've read, and I, for anyone listening or just paying attention right now, it's, I'm in chapter 11, the sheriff. The sheriff, to me, you just wanted to hug that guy when that scene comes up. I call it a scene because the way the audible is, it feels like I'm watching a movie. It's really incredible. It's like a yes moment. And I can even remember where I was driving. At this point, I was driving down 45. And I, I, you know, it's one of those moments where you're going, finally, this book is giving me what I needed. Like it's been, you know, it, it's been tough and it's been tenacious experience experiencing this boy's life and his mother's life in the little parts that we do. And then ultimately, and I know you told me it just gets better from there. Well, I think it does, but then I wrote it. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I'm telling you right now, it, it's good. And now I know that I am going to keep trucking along to continue, especially if you say the ending is he puts that, puts the fight scene that I described to you, if it even goes further than that. So it's, it'll be very loving to, to see Drew prevail. I'm having fun thinking about how you're going to feel when you read <laughs> page 274. Wonderful. The last two words in page 274. Now, if you've got a copy of the book, don't go there and read those last two words first. <laughs> okay. And if you're listening to the audio, you can't. Well, maybe you can skip yeah, ahead. But don't. But don't. Take the journey. I didn't understand the journey for, I'm telling you, I, I, I don't know if I have, I'm two hours in or what, but I didn't really understand what condi- how I was being conditioned by the book to feel the weight and the thickness of the atmosphere of the ni- late 1920s and 1930s. But you did oh. it. Congratulations to oh. you, Jim, because I had never signed up for that. I never signed up for that. It was really a surprise to me. Well, thank you. I'm glad. I, I'm kind of embarrassed to hear you say that because that makes it sound so noble. I just told a story. That's all. <laughs> well, don't be embarrassed. This is uh, You wrote this book. Something obviously inspired you to do it. And I, I found it to be quite a surprise. You know, when we met, you mentioned how it is regarding whites and blacks and going back in time and all of that. And I also understood that the boy had a mother that was a prostitute. This was just what you had mentioned to me before I owned a copy. But with just that, it doesn't, it, it, you know, it's not until you walk down the road and start opening, you know, reading through these pages that you experience what you designed. And, it, and you did a good job. It was, it's very good, and I can't wait to continue on. So when it comes to race today and your 50-year career, obviously working with a team. I'm sure it was a very, it was a diverse team. I'm sure you had different people you worked with, and ultimately you were the president, CEO, managing people. What would you say to those of us that are, you know, whether they're my age or younger, you know, we, we weren't around for what you've seen as far as how diversity was such a problematic thing back in the past. 
how would you say things have evolved? Like when you look at, mm-hmm. we do have a ways to go, don't we? I think we do. And I think any black person will tell you we'd have a long way to go. In the book, one of the things I do deliberately in the book is I have these black people, when they talk to each other, they use correct English. But when they talk to a white person, their language is subservient. Yaza, boss, yaza. Because white people would be, in those days, would get insulted. If, I never knew this. If, if, you, if a white person didn't talk to them that way. In fact, I have a line in that book, in the, in the first few chapters you've read, where this black preacher is speaking, trying to speak like a white man, and therefore he's getting uppity. Do you remember that line? Yeah, and quite, and quite interesting because yeah. one of the one of the things I didn't like is like, you know, you hear people say this person talks like a black person, or what you know, like that's something that you hear. And then, like, I remember one of my best school teachers ever, Fitzgerald Walks. He's still my friend, and he's was a police officer, school teacher, and Mister Walks. One time when we were in ninth grade, he asked, "What is a black person?" talk like and it was interesting to see how all the students reacted i mean and we were it was a we i went to a diverse school so there was all kind all of different folks in there and it was that conversation that i learned very early from mr walks that allowed me to realize you know it's like it was kind of like a that's offensive that somebody thinks that an african-american talks a certain way because you really shouldn't know the difference exactly but to what you're saying right now and going to this pastor and and this book where there is a for sure way that the African-Americans are speaking, it's interesting that that was a conscientious decision because of the dynamic or the paradigm between whites and blacks, Mm -hmm. almost like it was a choice. A survival, almost like a not to be uppity or disrespect the white person. I would have never known that. I mean, this is like, this is literally information to me that I'm, I'm exposed to that I wouldn't otherwise be if we've never met. I mean, I didn't live in that time. Well, what you've told me is that uh, with at least one reader, you, my book has achieved its objective. Mm. So that is indeed part of your plan. Yeah. Yeah, it works. It works. Well, I just kind of wanted to make that statement that and just how things were so people might think about not that they're done and not that we're done not that it's fixed today but we are on the same path now Mm -hmm. or many of us now are on the same path that martin luther king laid out for everybody Mm -hmm. what do you think are there any anecdotes that you think will help us in society get through this you know i just I did a podcast a couple episodes ago about police officers. Now, look, police officers are black. Police officers are white. They're Hispanic. I mean, there's all kinds of police officers. But in you know, if you watch the media or you watch some of these things that go on, there is a whole thing where there's some hatred for police officers. And in this interview that I had, and I'm not saying everyone does that, but I'm just saying there's one of the, there's a little, there's a, there's a group of people out there that really are, you know, enjoying hating police officers. And, and there's a need to humanize these officers. And, 
there's a major disconnect there. Not with everybody, obviously, but there's a there's just a little a portion of the population, and there's some really terrible things that have gone on. And it might even if if even if there's three hundred thousand police officers right now in the U- United States, even if it's point zero zero one percent that are the ones that are causing this bad vibe, the fact is is there's an epidemic there. You know, there's a thing where police officers, regardless of race have this a a bit of a battle on their hands regarding this now with race you know it's like how do how do we how do we heal faster how do we move this along further you know what 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 can we what what do you think that when you see it you think we're moving the dial in the right direction i haven't really thought about it exactly in those, those terms but now that you bring it up one thing that you don't hear and one thing that you do hear, you hear people say, oh, I'm an African-American. You don't hear people say, I'm a European-American, a Northern European-American. And until we can stop saying, I'm an Hispanic-American, or when we can stop saying, I'm a Black or African-American, we can stop saying that. We will be a light years from where we are today. That's beautiful. I, I, I as you say that, it, it, it's, it's this thing, and you see it everywhere, where everybody wants to identify us as a group. You know, it's like any 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 individual. It's like people want to be identified. At least the system wants to identify you as a certain thing. You're Jewish. You're Christian. You're black, you're white, you know, and, and, and meanwhile, that is something that, that is a learned behavior. I mean, it, it's, it has to be a learned behavior because as kids, you don't see any issues there. It's something that's being impressed on, on certain individuals. And there's other parents that do a really great job at not having their children be exposed to that. And even with the N-word, it's like, I did everything I could for my kids never to hear the N-word. But you turn on a, you know, I had Sirius Radio. I turned on Hip Hop 45 or whatever the damn channel was. And it was N-word, 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 N-word. Not for me, but I mean, I turned it off. But it's like, I think that overall, you know, there's, there, there is a thing where, sometimes we're just stuck on something that's really not healthy for anybody. One of the things when we were talking on the phone was we kind of got into the idea that when you produce the book, right, you you really did some quality control on who narrated this, narrated the production. You even had something to do with, you know, the dialects and all that. Can you just tell us a little bit about about that experience and and maybe even like some of the things that you paid attention to when you heard it the first round? Obviously, you trusted somebody. You you trusted is it Kevin to read the book? Yeah, Kevin. Uh, we didn't know Kevin when we uh, start, decided to do an audio book. In fact, I knew nothing about do, put, putting a book out as an audio book. I went to a website called acx.com. I talked to a friend of mine who's a writer who'd gotten her books on Audible, and I talked to her a little bit about how she'd done it. And then I uh, just went to acx.com and started reading and going through their tutorials, et cetera, online. It's really helpful. 
it's a great website. If you've got a, anything you want to put on Audible, first thing you do, go to acx.com. In any case, as a writer, what you finally do when you decide you want to proceed is you put together an audition script. And we took scenes out of the book, and your audition script's supposed to be about three pages, which I think is too long, but that's all right. We put together an audition script and just put it out there. We got auditions from all over, from New York. One potential narrator was from Boston, another from Michigan. I don't remember where they were all from. We listened, my wife and I listened intently to each one. And we had some biographical information about each one, but not a whole lot, each narrator. And I had already said I wanted a mature voice, thinking Morgan Freeman. Wouldn't Mm. that be great? Actually, no. I came around to the idea that listening to many of these people come up with a more mature voice, that wasn't what I wanted at all. This is a story of a kid. Why wouldn't I want a young voice? Why would I want a, something, a voice that's, that, that's older? Why would I want that? And that's when we listened to the narrator that we did select. A young man, 27 years old, living in Sugarland, Texas. Golly sakes alive. What's his name, Kevin? Kevin Lucignolo. Mm. Italian descent, I'm sure. It took me a, quite a while to learn how to pronounce the name. <laughs> he nailed it. He nailed the accents of Southern Arkansas. He nailed the accents of the black people in the speaking when they spoke in their dialects he nailed the accent what the uh, one of the characters is a hispanic fellow that operates this little rundown grocery store in a poor part of a southern arkansas town he nailed his accents just absolutely perfectly i couldn't get over how well he did that and his emotions clearly show through in the narration as he narrates it he feels or he projects that he's feeling the emotions that a reader would feel. I asked him about that. I met him one time after, after the narration was completed and all that sort of business. I talked to him and he said, well, he said, as a narrator, I don't always get into the story. But he said, this case, I did. He said, I got into it. The story hooked me. I was emotionally involved in the story. So the emotions you hear me when I'm narrating, he said, Those were my emotions. Wow. I thought that was huge. Yeah, it is. Hey, everybody. I had Jim Cole. I'm just interrupting the interview real quick. I had Jim record a little setup for us to play the sample from Audible. So that's what we're going to do. And as soon as this sample's over, it's it's about a uh, two and a half minute part of the book. And then I will go right back to the interview. So here we go. This is a scene where... The little boy is 10 years old. It's Southern Arkansas. It's 1936. It's night. His mother has just told him he has to leave home. And he's going, he's done that. He's left the house and he's wandered off. He doesn't know where he's going to go or why he's going to go there or what he's going to do about it. He's sad. He's angry. He's hurt. He climbs into a railroad boxcar. And he doesn't know where the train's going to take him. He thinks maybe it'll take him north to where he knows he has friends. But it doesn't. The train is headed south. And he's going to somewhere. He knows he's going towards Louisiana, 
but he doesn't know anything more about it, and he knows he has no one to go to in Louisiana. He breaks into tears and just completely loses it. But then, after a while, he straightens up and he looks his future clear in the eye. And that's the scene you're going to hear now. Tears, unbidden, began to roll down his cheeks. Anger, too, welled up in him. I'm not going to cry, Drew swore under his breath. He was angry at Edith, at Eugene, and at his life. But despite his resolve, he collapsed into tears. Great sobs of anguish, anger, and frustration racked his body. Tears streaked the dirt on his face. The ten-year-old boy lay huddled in the cold and wind. Reality tore at his soul. Edith had never loved him. She'd always considered him a burden. He knew now that his friends, Marty, Eddie, Reverend Thomas, Miss Catherine, Sister Alma, Imogene, and Leon, all these people truly loved him. He knew that they loved him still. He continued crying, but the heaving sobs subsided, and hope dawned in his breast. He knew why he was on this train. He would go to those who loved him. He would ride the boxcar all the way to Little Rock. He would go to his family, as he had almost blurted out in Mr. Martinez's kitchen. Finally, his tears were gone, and there were only streaks left in the dirt on his face. Drew raised his head and stood and braced himself against the wall of the car. Holding himself steady, he made his way along the rocking, shaking, noisy car until he reached the open door. He looked about the boxcar, filled with cold wind and dust. He looked out at the landscape rushing past. The clouds had moved away, and there was a full moon framed in the open boxcar door. Drew snapped into full attention, blinking and staring with disbelief at the rising moon. Maybe the moon was setting and he was looking west. No, he'd been right the first time. The moon was rising. He was not on a train heading north toward Little Rock, but on one going south. He knew south would take him out of Arkansas, away from Little Rock, away from his friends. Drew slumped down, still clinging to the doorframe. He quickly tried to assess how far he had gone. He couldn't tell if dawn was several minutes or hours away. He might even be in Louisiana already. He now knew with certainty that his childhood was over. He thought he might cry again, and a sob began in his throat. He sat on the floor next to the open door and put his head down, his arms folded over. Several minutes went by as he forced the tears back, and as he did, something inside him indefinably hardened. He raised his head and pulled himself up, holding the side of the door. Though he couldn't know it, his face had somehow changed along with something inside of him. He stood there, clinging to the doorframe of the wildly swaying, noisy car in the cold wind. Drew realized he'd taken a step on life's road to maturity, and that now he was standing at the threshold of manhood. He held the doorframe tightly and was at last unafraid and confident. Whatever life held for him, he would meet the challenge head-on. He screamed with defiance into the wind and into the wilderness as it rushed past. I will never cry again. All right, back to the show. 
I didn't expect to feel emotions. You know, like I, again, a nonfiction book, I'm thinking I'm just going to pander through it and it'll be whatever. It's emotional. Well, during the 12 years I spent writing the book, you know, I write a little bit and I put it down. I change things around. I put it down and pick it up and pick it down. Over those 12 years, chapter one never changed. It was always the same. It was the one constant with chapter one. If my wife read chapter one once, she must have read it a hundred times during those years or had me read it to her as we would change words around and things like that. The chapter never changed, but some of the wording did and things like that. When she heard Kevin narrate chapter one for the first time, we were sitting in front of the computer listening. She was kind of behind me, really. I turned around and looked at her. Tears were running down her cheeks. She was crying. Wow. And she'd heard, she knew the story. She knew the chapter. She knew the whole thing. But it really, the chapter one really got to her. That poor little boy. Yeah. And Kevin brings it in. It brings it to life. He does. I mean, for me, he really kept my attention. I'm not someone with, with a super long attention span, but he does a great job. You know, in the 1940s and before, they would have radio. They had radio shows, not television shows. You know, nobody had a television set. So you had a radio show. Some of them were comedies, some of them were mysteries, and some of them had several characters. Many times when those radio shows were being broadcast, and they, most, they were broadcast live, mm -hmm. you might have two actors giving voice to four or five people. But if it's a radio, you, you couldn't tell. Mm -hmm. The actors would change their voices. One of those actors was a fellow named, back in the 1930s, was a fellow named Lon Chaney. He made a number of, of old movies, too. They called him the man of a thousand voices. And that's what I think of when I listen to Kevin, because he does all these different voices mm -hmm. and keeps them consistent throughout. Yeah. He takes the little boy's voice from age three to age 19. And he, every time he has something in there, you don't need to have a he said or Drew said or whatever. You know that's Drew speaking, even though one time he might be 12 and yeah. another time later on he might be 15 or 16. Pretty genius. That's really something, it, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's, it's extraordinary talent is what yeah. I think Kevin has. It's funny because as you talk, I go, you already know that I've told you that, you know, even the, the scene with the sheriff, you know, talking to the bullies, it's like I feel like I... I've, in my mind's eye, I think I saw the sheriff, even though we all know that that's Kevin doing all the voices. So it's pretty, right. pretty, pretty incredible. Definitely something great for anyone who's looking for an entertaining and I want to say very enlightening book to read or listen to either way. But I, I do, I, I kind of, because of my audible experience, I'm thinking, I almost want to recommend that. What do you think about that? If it's somebody recommending to do the audible versus the, written or I don't know it I don't know really how to uh, if there's a preference over one or the other you you wrote the book how do you feel well I have another book on the way as I said earlier and I've thought about just going directly to audible with that book really that's fascinating but why I mean that's incredible really well first place is faster than trying to get a book trying to publish your book as a print version, hard copy, soft copy, or as an ebook, you can. It's easier to go directly to to Audible, but it just seems to me that I like to look at a printed page too. Yeah, I like the idea of being able to sit back and 
and just open a book and well, read a book. As you say that, it's like now that I'm where I'm at with the Audible, I kind of want the paper book just so I can absorb it a different way. Well, I guess that's maybe what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So I don't think I'm going to go direct to Audible. I yeah. think I'm going to go the old-fashioned way and put my next book out. When do you think it's going to hit? Like uh, how I, far I'm, ta- I'm targeting right after the first of the year. Okay, that's not too far off. But, you know, targeting a book and deciding when you want it done and actually getting it done sometimes are two or three different (laughs) things. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's all kinds of interesting roadblocks or little, you know, just little adjustments that have to be made or or even creatively you just notice things that you want to tweak. Well, you know, things happen in your life and you get distracted about one Mm -hmm. first one thing and another, you know, things as mundane as, oh, the yard needs to be mowed today. (laughs) I can't sit down and write today. I got to go mow the yard. Yeah. Which is a perfect segue into where I I want us to go next, which is, you know, part of the fascination I have about your story is that, yeah, you do your 50 year career and, and it was good. You know, from what I understand, you were involved with Kyle Field and you also were involved with the building of Bush Intercontinental Airport. Really neat stuff. Oh, yeah. It had a lot of fun, too. But it was, but to you, it's like once your career was done with that, you were like, I'm never doing that again. I'm moving on to the next chapter. And you went towards writing. You know, you, you can you just tell, tell me a little bit about after you retired from civil engineering, you went to work for the Houston Chronicle. Is that right? Or you just volunteered these stories with the Houston Chronicle? No, that's not exactly how it happened. When I retired, I knew, I, or right after I retired, when I decided to go out to Rice and check into their School of Continuing yes. Education. And I went through those classes in continuing education and wrote some short stories as part of the classwork. Mm-hmm. And after I got done with all of that, I got really lucky. A friend of mine who was taking classes with me, she said, you know, you're, you're a pretty good writer, which I thought was huge, someone said to me. <laughs> yeah. And she said, why don't you take one of the stories that you've written and send it in to, and she named the name of, an, of the editor at the Chronicle. I'd never heard of him before. Mm-hmm. And so I did take a story. A, he called it an essay because it's a short, short story. He called it an essay. <laughs> and I guess that's what it was. And I sent it in with a, with a little email to this guy. And he wrote me back right away. And he says, yeah, I want to publish that. Have you got any more stories? Wow. It turned out that the Chronicle had kind of a stable of writers around in Houston in those days. And this lady who told me to send it in was one of, one of the writers that was in the stable. And they had, I don't know how many writers they had, but I would send in short stories and they'd, they would put them in a line. To, mm-hmm. I never had a deadline or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I was under contract. Was it fulfilling? I mean, I would imagine it's extremely fulfilling to be... Oh, the first Sunday that my, one of my stories was published, that was huge. I, you know, neighbors calling, hey, yeah. you wrote this? Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. So that was huge. Yeah. That made me say, you know, I want to be a writer. That's great. I love that. And then I would also enter a writing contest, short story contest. You know, there's a number of writing as- associations or organizations around in the air, Houston yeah. area. That, uh, that that sponsor contests from time to time. And I entered short story contests. One of them's called Bay Area Writers Association mm-hmm. down in the Friendswood area sure. and whatnot. 
And then you'd get your story back after you submitted. And if whether or not you want anything, you'd still get it back with marks up all over it and things mm-hmm. like that. And so that was kind of fun and all. And then a writer's contest came up in conjunction right after, right after 9-11. And the buildings had collapsed in New York and mm-hmm. they'd killed all those people and things like that. All those horrible things in 9-11. The United States government decided that they would have a traveling exhibit of the, one of the copies, original copies of the Declaration of Independence. And you'd go all over the United States in various venues. And when it came to, or was scheduled to come to A&M, the Brazos Writers Organization, in conjunction with the Barbara Bush Literacy League, decided to hold a short story contest in connection with, or an essay, or whatever, in connection with this display of the Declaration of Independence. And the essays, if you decided to be write an essay, had to be like uh, 750 words. Mm-hmm. And a, if you were a winner in this contest, you get $200, which in, 19, in 2001 was a lot more money then than it is now. Mm-hmm. And it certainly was to me. I was just then getting used to living on a fixed income. And then it was also your essay would be hung beside the Declaration, framed and hung beside the Declaration of Independence. You get to read it aloud to an audience at the Reed Center at A&M. Yeah. And they told me it would also accompany the Declaration of Independence to the National Archives. Wow. So I wrote 647 words. There were 3,600 entries, they told me. And to my absolute astonishment, I won first place. Wow. Well, congratulations on that. That's incredible. So... I haven't been to the National Archives to see <laughs> if my essay that is, really something. Is, is on display up there. Yeah. But it was framed and on display beside the Declaration of Independence at A&M. What was that story about? Do you, if you were to... About 647 46, words. Yeah. It was a story about an old man who goes fishing and experiences peace. And while he's experiencing this peace at a sunrise in Aransas Bay... He realizes that this is the last day of the 20th century Mm. and how he wants this feeling that he has of peace to extend into the new millennium. And the essay talks a little bit about how some of the words of our Declaration of Independence and Constitution confound people around the world even today Mm. after 200 and whatever years. All men are created equal. Does that not confound the world? That concept. That's so true. So that story, winning that contest, convinced me that I could write. (laughs) That's what it took. That's awesome. That was the final step. Well, I I guess in your career and, and now you have this writing career, any highlights you could share, even from the civil engineering days, just things where you noticed certain philosophies or or kind of your own personal strategies that you've utilized, whether it has been in your your traditional job back doing civil engineering or even in the writing disciplines or just things, the way you, the way you think about things that kind of helps you execute your goals, which, you know, that's the one thing that you've done is you stuck to writing and you've told me this book took you 12 years to write. That's not, you know, 
that's not for the faint of heart. That means that whenever you had a chance, you were working on it. And when you didn't have a chance and life was more important at the moment, you you chose life. Well, my next book's not going to take 12 years. I, <laughs> at 84 years old, I'm not sure I have 12 left. So I've got to that's get started and uh, yeah. get that one out. Yeah. I've been working on that one now for about three years, and I okay. think I'm going to make that time frame pretty work yeah. out for me. Yeah. But can you take us back to your, you know, like your career days or, or just, just truths that if you were to be mentoring somebody, just things that you think are just good, good measure for even someone like myself for navigating life? No, I really can't think of anything I would tell. I'm trying to imagine, suppose I were sitting here talking to a young engineer and he would say, what's the one thing you want me to tell you or you want to tell me about being an engineer? And I think I would say, there's always something else to do. <laughs> that's that's an interesting thing. When you finally get down to the final analysis and it's opening day for this thing that you've had a hand in building, there's one more thing to do and you haven't thought of it yet. Wow. And I'll tell you about the stadium at the University of Oklahoma. At the last day of, a foot, of the football season in 1973, I think it was, we dynamited the press box, dropped it, and began work on an upper deck for Owen Field in Norman, Oklahoma. We had from that day to the opening day of football season, nine months later. And, you know, an upper deck's kind of a complicated thing to put together. And I kept saying to myself all through that, just one more thing I got to do, one more thing. And sure enough, when it came up time for opening day to come about, all the fanfare, newspaper articles, opening day of the new stadium, blah, blah, this, and blah, blah, that. Big crowds coming. I'm biting my nails. There's one more thing to do. <laughs> I found out what it was. Yeah. There was a series of seats in the stadium that were called prestige seats where all the legislators and uh -huh. hoi polloi and yeah. whatever yeah. of Oklahoma sat. Now, i got to say one more thing about, about football in Oklahoma. In a lot of places throughout the South, football is almost a religion. I will tell you that in Oklahoma, it is a religion. <laughs> all of these people were there. I was in the press box because we didn't have cell phones in those days. So I was in the press box, which was kind of command central for this one last thing that had to happen. And that last thing that had to happen, that hadn't happened, happened. The hot dog bun warming machine wouldn't work. <laughs> and we had, it was the one that oh served all of these really important oh. people. Wow. And they couldn't get their hot dog buns warmed. So I dashed down to where the concession area was and this <laughs> brand new hot dog machine bun warmer thing yeah. was there. And I had workmen around all in there, whatever. Everybody's struggling to get this thing back working, legislators and whoever are <laughs> angry and waving their hands. And uh -huh. get the Barry Switzer was coach then. Barry Switzer called me that damn engineer. God. Not over the hot dog buns, but over some other things that happened. Yeah. While everybody was crowded around this machine, this young girl, she was like 22. I later asked her what her what she was studying in school. And she said something like nuclear physics or something like that. She walked up to the, to the whole crowd of people and she says, I can fix that. 
whew, all these technicians and technical people around trying to get this thing. She said, I can fix it. I said, shove her in. And crowd parted. She went in and she reached inside and she twisted two wires together. So, anybody got any electrical tape? Whoa. She t- it worked. Oh, my goodness. How crazy. That one last thing is nobody checked the bun warmer. Wow. Isn't that something? And in construction, I'm sure that was, you know, it's one of those things where your client, you know, it's a pretty big investment, right? <laughs> Building a stadium. But to think that how often it is that you were dealing with people and maybe the situations were way more difficult than just the bun warmer. I'm sure there is uh Oh, there were other things, of course, that yes. happened. Yeah. When the carpet for the Oklahoma team dressing and training area got delivered, I saw, I'd seen a sample. Carpet was picked out by the university architects, not me. And I'd seen a sample and it was kind of a reddish color. Mm-hmm. Didn't pay any attention. But when it got delivered and Barry Switzer saw it for the first time, it wouldn't do because it was burnt orange. Mm. And of course, if you know, yes. <laughs> burnt orange for the University of Texas and Texas yes. is arch, arch enemies of Oklahoma, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's one of the reasons Switzer called me that damn engineer because yeah. he thought it was my fault. <laughs> and the university architect never, never owned up to it. So I said, okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Sometimes you just, you, you, you take your, your thumps, I guess, even when you're not the, the, the source. Well, every time you get to one of these points where something you've been working on for a long time gets put together, there's one last thing to do, and you've got to spend your time thinking about it. That's incredible. That's, that's a really, it's fascinating to hear that because when you think of these big projects, and I don't know if you have any interesting stories to tell us about Kyle Field, but you know, I know a lot of Aggies that would probably love to hear anything about Kyle Field, the original Kyle Field. Well, I worked on various and sundry projects for Kyle Field for a period of 38 years. We were first called over to A&M back in 1968. They wanted more seats in their stadium. They had a really small section of the stadium that was an upper deck, but it was kind of crude and not very big and certainly had been put together on the fly cheaply. Mm -hmm. And they finally decided they had enough money to do a full-scale upper deck on both the east side and the west side. And so we went to work on doing that and took down the the upper deck that was there and put another upper deck over it. It was pretty a straightforward project. I can't come up with very many anecdotes of that day about how there was one, one more thing to do or whatever. But when we came along to do the third deck and we were going to put prestige boxes in, underhung under that, prestige boxes that A&M graduates and corporations and whatever would pay big chunks of money for the privilege of renting this one of these big boxes up there. And that money would be used to finance the stadium. Mm-hmm. And I was out in the middle of the field one day with uh, the coach with a styrofoam model of this thing. So he was looking at the styrofoam model that he'd looked at the, at the stadium he said, you'll never sell these Aggie boxes, Cole. Well, it wasn't my job to sell them anyway. That was the job of the Aggie club. <laughs> but I didn't say that. I just said, well, okay, coach, what do you want me to do about it? He said, oh, I don't know. You just, you, you're never going to sell them. Opening day, they sold out in like 10 minutes. Wow. Validation. But, but Yeah, validation. But it wasn't my idea to put the boxes up there anyway. Right. Uh, but, you know, I'm the guy on the field and... 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the way the coach thought. Yeah. Just like Barry Switzer thought it was my fault that yeah. the carpet was burnt orange. Yeah. And we had a similar experience with the University of Texas Stadium. Originally, UT, oh, UT decided to put an upper deck on after the Aggies got theirs. UT says, oh, well, we can't let the Aggies get ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, and in fact, the A&M got AstroTurf first, and nothing would do but a but but Texas uh, had to have it. And they that was the other, one of the other things we did, is we put the uh, AstroTurf down. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we got a call from the University of Texas to you got to come up here. We want an upper deck. We want two upper decks, east side, west side. And so that's how we got into that project because it spit off from the Aggies. Yeah. Sometime later at A&M, one of my guys came in and was talking to A&M. had been talking to him. He was my head architect about the zone, putting up over an overhanging deck on the end zone of the stadium and putting prestige boxes there because of all the success that they'd had with these prestige boxes. And they were all wishing that they had put prestige boxes on the east side stands too, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. So we'll build a zone. And I said, George, you can't put an upper deck on the end zone of A&M. Why not? Because, George, you need a foundation to hold them all up there. There's no sky hooks. If you could hold all that stuff up there, you got to dig big holes and fill them up with concrete. Mm. George says, I know that. I say, right. But the A&M people have buried their mascots, Reveille, there in that place for decades. And they buried these dogs there so the dog's spirits could see through the archway wow. and see the scoreboard as the games were being played. Wow. So Reveille's from decades past are buried there. George says, no worries. We'll dig them up. Well, that was huge. You're going to disturb these dogs? <laughs> Finally, though, George did prevail. And we decided, because he came up with plans for, uh-huh. of a wall with drawers or openings in the uh, yeah. uh, compartments yeah. for each one of the animals that had passed away with spares for those that will pass away in the future. And that we would put an electronic screen up there so the dog's spirits in this wall can see the scoreboard. Fascinating. And so that's what we set out to do. I don't remember now how many dogs. Sure. And Aggies get irritated if I call them dogs, <laughs> but they were, that, that, sorry. Yeah. yeah. How many of these revelies of years past were buried there? I don't remember how many were supposed to be buried there, but yeah. I know how many we found. And it wasn't that many. We didn't find all the dogs. Wow. What we found... Well, we went and got the University Archaeology Department mm-hmm. and built a, a fence around the whole thing saying the dogs need to privacy for all of this. And Aggie students would get around outside the fence and they'd sing wow. songs, Aggie war hymns and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And we, the archaeologists were out there with their little screens and little bitty shovels and sifting the dirt and everything. We found about half as many animals as we were supposed to find. Mm. So we finally just sort of separated all the bones and everything to the different drawers. So parts of yeah. the dogs are in different different drawers. <laughs> yeah, sure. But And then seal those yeah. things up, and they're there today. Wow, that's a fascinating story. I had no clue about that. That's very interesting. It takes longer to tell than it really happened, but whatever. Yeah. All right. You know, a lot of people that listen to us are business people. Either they have, they, they work for people that might not be the nicest, or they could work for really great people. 
in your experience in those last 10 years where you somewhere in there you became the CEO and the fearless leader of this civil engineering firm is there anything that you would say that you noticed or was news to you as you climbed the ranks and ultimately found yourself as CEO? Well, what I did as CEO is I tried to channel the original partners. I knew them. I was, when I was hired, they were, there were three original partners of the company. Mm -hmm. These guys right out of college in the midst of the great depression in 1935, the year I was born, put this company together. Whoa. That was huge that they had the foresight to start an engineering company in the middle of the Great Depression. And how they did what they did was what I tried to do when I got to be president. I knew each one of these guys. I knew what their strengths were. Mm -hmm. And I tried to take what I knew about their strengths and use that to run the company. Interesting. But as far as having any sort of personal philosophy that anything, I didn't do that. I just tried to do what Mason Lockwood or Bill Andrews or Frank Noonan would have done. Mm. When I first became president, one of them was still alive, and I did talk to him a lot mm -hmm. during those years. But Was there any one thing that you thought was the most challenging about leading a team like that? Probably dealing with our architectural division. Our architects, architects are free thinkers. I love them dearly, but sometimes they can drive you crazy. And it's because of their creativity? Yeah, exactly. As an engineer, you don't really want to create a whole lot. When you're designing something, you want to put something down that works, and you know it's going to work. Mm. And the architects are more inclined to want to think outside the box. Mm -hmm. I love them for being able to think outside the box. But there's a practicality that's needed exactly. for even like an air conditioning system. It's got to he's got to be able to run ducts through. Yeah, a exactly. Building. And bun barbers have got to work. <laughs> well, with that, I want to say thank you so much for sharing your stories with me. And My pleasure. I want to make sure anyone listening will know how to get a hold of you. I'll take any of the contact information you're about to share. I'll make sure it's in our show notes. How do our listeners find the book, find you? If they want to email you, is that an option? Tell us, tell us all how we can connect. I have a website, coldminds.com. Spell it. C-O-L-E-M-I-N-E-S, coldminds.com. And my email address is jim at coldminds.com. Terrific. And you're going to be doing book signings consistently. Kroger's has been very good to, is very, is very good to a lot of Texas authors. There's about a hundred of us, more or less, who go around to different Kroger stores in the Galveston, Houston, Dallas, mm -hmm. Fort Worth, East Texas, Kroger region. And we go almost every weekend to a Kroger store. That's where I met you. It's, it's, you know, for anyone listening, you know, it's, it's it really is neat to see 84-year-old Jim Cole and his wife really working the circuit. I, I, I walk into this grocery store and there's a table and there's books and he's signing them and there's people talking to him. And it was really to the point where, I mean, when we first met, I think we could have talked for 20 minutes if we had the chance. But really, it's, it's a very interesting, interactive experience to see you with the books and get a chance to you know, anyone who's interested, I guess they could, through your website, know where your book signings are if they wanted to go that route. I haven't published the in 
the book signings on my website yet, but that's a good idea. I hadn't thought about it. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we can announce some on the Feed the Machine Facebook page too. We could kind of let people know where where you're going to be when that time comes. Well, I'm thinking I'll start publishing them on my webpage. It's an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I generally only schedule about a month in advance. Some writers or authors schedule the whole year in advance. Mm -hmm. I'm nowhere near that organized. (laughs) Besides that, you know, in your 80s, sometimes things happen <laughs> that, uh, uh, that you, you know, and I, I hate to cancel once I've yeah. got something scheduled with them. <laughs> so in addition to the website, we have on Amazon.com, people can access the book. The, the book is available at Amazon.com as a hard copy, hardback book, book or as a soft, soft copy book, yeah. soft, soft back, or as an e-book, or certainly as an audio yeah. And I would encourage anybody just because I'm experiencing the book as, you know, some people make jokes about people that listen to audiobooks. I honestly did it because it was like the easiest, fastest way. And it was me talking to Jim and hearing about the dialects and the quality of the narration that made me just know like that was what I needed to do. And I'm glad I did it. And I would highly recommend anyone who's considering getting the book start on, I would say, start on audiobooks. It'll make you want a paper copy anyway, and you'll probably want to just meet Jim if you have the chance, because it's a, a neat thing to do. So thank you, Jim. I I can't tell you how, how refreshing and surprising and and educational this experience has been just in me listening to the first 11 chapters. I'm going to keep going And I can't wait to talk to you again as I complete the book. Well, and maybe we'll get together and talk about my next one when it's when it's available. Oh, for sure. We're going to do that. I think we we have to. And I have a I'm sure I have a few friends that might want to interview you as well on different topics, too, because there's a lot to this. We just touched on a little bit of it. But thank you so much and looking forward to our our next chat. I am too. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Feed the Machine. Peace out. Peace out.